This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. Welcome to Historia Ecclesia, our series of conversations of the Church through history. Today we begin our broadcast of a series of lessons on J. Gresham Machen, taught by Dr. Daryl Hart at Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Glenside, Pennsylvania. So we start uh, today a course on um, J. Gresham Machen, um, and I, I don't know what I called it in, in um, the communique, but I've now come up with the, uh, the title, Fighter of the Good Fight. Um, and I'll try to explain why I'm emphasizing the fighting. Um, so I think it's, it's important to uh, Machen's, Machen's career, uh, life and work, as well as to the OPC. And, and um, so I want to keep in view throughout this course um, Machen's uh, relationship to the OPC. But I'll say more about that um, as, as I progress. I want to start on a personal note. Um, and this. this may be inappropriate, but I, uh, it's hard for me uh, to talk about Machen and, and thinking about my own uh, history with Machen. Um, I, I first became aware of the Reformed faith as an as a undergraduate student at Temple, and a friend recommended that I study, go to Labrie and study with Francis Schaeffer there, um, and so I sort of became aware of some reform categories, came back, went to Westminster, um, and studied more reform theology there. We didn't learn much about Machen when I was there. Um, I went up to Harvard Divinity School, of all places, and there encountered Machen for the first time, really, in a significant way. I had a professor, William R. Hutchison, a great um, religious historian, probably the f- foremost historian of Protestant liberalism, and he wrote a great book on Protestant liberalism called The Modernist Impulse in American Protestantism, and he features Machen in a chapter of that book, and in the, in the survey course that he taught in American religious history, he also assigned Christianity liberalism, Machen's probably Machen's most important and popular book. And so it was at that time that I started to read Machen, became aware of him, became aware that no one else was uh, working on him, and, and Various people, from George Marsden to Mark Knoll and others, encouraged me to, to do a dissertation on Machen. Um, I, I was sometimes tempted to do something else, um, and I actually beat out one of Marsden's students. There's a kind of un, in, informal etiquette that once you choose your, your dissertation topic, no one else can. So technically, I had chosen mine before one of Marsden's students who wanted to do a similar thing, and so he had to do something else. His name is Brad Longfield. He did a book on the Presbyterian Controversy, and he did seven biographies in that, in that book rather than just Machen. But, um, so I, I, I spent a lot of time with Machen between 1983, um, when I started um, at Johns Hopkins doing my doctoral work, and then when the book finally came out based on the dissertation. And I, I mean, I've continued to work on Machen since. I taught a course here at Calvary in 1999. I regularly teach on Machen out of Westminster, California. Um, so this is not just an academic pursuit for me. It's very much something that has altered my 
understanding of Christianity, especially the Reformed faith. I grew up an evangelical or fundamentalist. Um, again, was exposed to Reformed faith through Schaefer. Um, and I became aware that Machen, Machen was in touch with a deeper and older expression uh, of Reformed faith that was uh, different from Schaefer's. And uh, I only, only um, later did I become aware of the differences between Schaefer and Machen. Schaefer, of course, was originally the Bible Presbyterian Church. And the Bible Presbyterian Church, as we will see, I hope by the end of this course, split away from the OPC in 1937. So Schaefer is one of those people who was sort of a follower of Carl McIntyre, and, and the McIntyre group was very critical of Westminster and the OPC. Um, so anyway, um, moving from Schaefer to Machen, even though I didn't realize it at first, was important. Um, again, uh, for my own personal um, understanding. So Anne and I met at 10th Presbyterian Church, um, which at the time was a PCUSA congregation. Um, in, in the late 70s and early 80s. I had a, a friend who recommended that I go to, to, to Labrie, was at the time a student at Reformed Episcopal Seminary, 43rd Chestnut Street at the time, and he was also uh, a member, I believe he was a member, at Knox OPC in Lansdowne, which was the exclusive psalm singing congregation, where Professor Murray went, I think, sometimes, that when he didn't come here, I actually heard Van Til preach one of his last sermons at that congregation. And this friend of mine, who now is unfortunately not a believer, um, but he couldn't believe that I would even countenance going to a PCUSA congregation. Um, and, I, and I was just clueless. It's evangelical. It's, you know, it's great. And I were married there in 1981. What could be wrong with 10th Presbyterian Church? But again, studying Machen and studying his concerns, I became aware of the difference that, say, Machen might make, especially for, for the way that we understand um, the Reformed faith in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Um, and so today I cannot believe that my wife and I were married in, in a Peace USA church, um, which it was at the time, it is no longer, so maybe we can be grandfathered out somehow or something. Um, so... Um, this, this study of Machen actually was also important um, for getting me on the radar of Charlie Denison, who was the historian of the OPC between 1982 and his death, which was when? When did he die, Danny? 99. 99. Um, Charlie did a great service to the OPC in many ways, but he was a historian. He was looking for someone to write a history of the OPC for, our, for the church's 60th anniversary. Um, and he turned to John Meather and me, and I've recently written a 75th uh, anniversary history of the OPC. It's still in manuscript, it's still being vetted by various committees, um, and having written that history, and having become aware of how much the OPC kind of lost touch with Machen, I believe in the 60s and 70s, um, and how Charlie was interested in recovering an awareness of Machen, within the OPC. Um, I having written a dissertation on Machen that came out in 1988 when I did my degree, um, it makes sense how I got on Charlie's radar, and it makes sense also how my interpretation in many respects dovetailed with Charlie's interest in Machen. And so um, the book that John Meather and I wrote for the 60th anniversary of the OPC was Fighting the Good Fight. 
Um, hence the name of this course in part, Fighter of the Good Fight. Fighting was important in the way that we understood the history of the OPC in that anniversary volume. And I still think, in retrospect, it's the proper way to understand uh, the OPC. And the reason for that is because of the way that Machen prosecuted his fight with liberalism, but also with other, with other aspects of American Protestantism. Um, so um, that book was controversial, I, I, I su suppose, depending on how the committee vets that this current manuscript, this, this 75th anniversary history, could be controversial. Um, whenever you write about people who are still living, it's always controversial. I tried to end the narrative uh, so that it, it included less living people than, than another book. Um, and uh, I was reassured recently by a friend of ours who uh, has taught at Penn for many years that you can only really make sense of something after 20 years. So trying to end the story around 1990 makes a lot of sense, but still, um, as we know in our congregation, there are a lot of old-timers in the OPC. Some of those old-timers even studied with Machen, and their involvement with Machen would be much more personal than even, even mine might be. Mr. I'm referring, of course, to Mr. Cushman and Mr. Galbraith, both of whom studied at Westminster, I believe, for a semester while, while Machen was still alive. Um, so anyway, that, that's kind of a little personal background on why this court, why Machen um, and I uh, have having an affair of a kind. Uh, there's, um, what's the writer's name? Um, Nicholas Baker, uh, who, a writer who uh, was a big fan of Updike, and he wrote, I still haven't read the book, it's called You and I, it's a book about his, his relationship to, to, um, to, to John Updike, and I guess I feel a little bit like that with, with Machen. So, what I want to do in this course is uh, ex explore what it was that prepared Machen to fight, and it was very unlikely, as we will see next week, I hope, for Machen to be a fighter. Um, you couldn't have, uh, there was nothing inevitable about his, his uh, career and, and life's work. And the second part of the course, I want to look at why, at what he fought, um, and then also spend time toward the end of the, the course looking at the basis upon which he fought. Um, but fighting, of course, will be a primary theme. And behind all this is a question that I, that I was trying to deal with a lot when re writing this recent history of the OPC, which is whether or not the fight is still relevant um, for the OPC. Is it necessary to keep fighting? There, are a lot of, there were a lot of people in the OPC in the 70s and 80s who said, Look, it, the fight's over, let's give it up. We don't need to keep fighting. Um, and there are other people who said, no, there are still lots of things to be concerned about. And this is part of our reputation, part of our identity as the Orthodox Presbyterian Church to, to fight, not just for the sake of fighting, but to try to be faithful to God's word. And so um, is, is, the, um, is the fight still in us? Do we still have, have the fight? Um, but Machen has left an indelible stamp upon me, and I hope to give a little bit of that impression to you. Um, and more importantly, I would say, though, that we cannot understand the OPC without understanding Machen. Um, Machen makes, uh, excuse me, oh, the OPC makes no sense apart from J. Gresson Machen. 
It doesn't mean that there aren't other people who are important to the OPC. I don't mean to suggest that. But the OPC has a specific history, a specific set of concerns because of the, the, the battles in which Machen fought. <clears throat> now, you, know, you could say, um, someone who is skeptical of, of me could say that Hart can't understand anything apart from Machen, and so I may be a little obsessed. Uh, but for, on a less personal note, I think it's, re it's responsible for the for Orthodox Presbyterians to consider Machen because as Camden alluded in our prayer, uh, in his prayer, Machen was the founder of the denomination. That's, that's not a term that we typically use because we, the OPC doesn't like celebrities and doesn't want to give too much credit to one, to one person. Um, and so it's, there's, a, there's a real egalitarian uh, ethos in the OPC that, that nobody really takes precedence over anyone else. And that's a really good ethos. But... It's also important historically to recognize how important Machen was to the OPC. So, in the sense that there are lots of Americans who are interested in the American founding and buy up all these biographies of the founders, Washington, Jefferson, Adams, Madison, Hamilton, um, that the, the literature on the founders is seemingly endless. Um, there's, there's a good reason to be interested in Machen because in some ways he is our George Washington. He was, after all, the first moderator of the first General Assembly. Um, so that's a little bit of, of personal background, but I hope that something goes beyond that. Now, secondly, I want to talk about a, a related reason for studying Machen, which concerns um, Machen and um, OPC identity, or the politics of identity. Um, and this might seem like an odd diversion, but I've been teaching at Temple this year <clears throat> a diverse range of students and teaching texts um, and episodes in, in American history that have um, made me aware very much of the importance of identity politics in our life as, as Americans. Um, since the 1960s, there has been, there was a crack-up of lost America, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant America, of which the, the mainline Protestant churches, the PCUSA, for, out of which the OPC came, was part. Um, and so Protestantism dominated American culture all the way down to the 60s, which is why prayer and Bible reading in public schools was very much part of uh, public life in America and why so many Americans were so shocked that to see that kind of civic religion removed from public life, and, and in some ways that, um, that removal of religion from public life spawned the religious right, and, and so the concerns about religion in American culture are, are with us. But post-1960s, America was less Protestant and tried to become, tried to adapt to its diversity. And so there were various efforts for people to claim their identity upon grounds other than American ones, um, or at least to create hyphenated identities, something hyphen American. Um, one of these efforts was racial. Ella uh, Taylor's Roots was a very popular television series, a very popular book, and there were various efforts, and still ongoing efforts, for African Americans to claim their own racial identity. Uh, one of the more um, militant forms of that was black power in the 60s and 70s. Also, black Muslims are trying <clears throat> to recover an African identity apart from being Christian. Um, so there, there was a, 
effort to try to, to preserve a kind of identity against white America on the parts of African Americans. Some, there was also a turn to ethnicity. Michael Novak wrote a very important book in the 1970s called The Rise of the Unmeltable Ethics. And so there was all sorts of efforts to recover an Irish identity or a German identity or a Polish identity. I should actually say, shouldn't say German because America fought two world wars with Germany. And so you, in America, you don't ever really want to cover your, recover your German identity. Um, that's why the Pennsylvania Germans are now called Pennsylvania Dutch, right? Dutch is easier sell than, than Pennsylvania German. Um, and, you know, Dutch isn't very far away from Deutsch, so kind of. <laughs> um, but anyway, so there was an ethnic rec recovery. There was a celebration of ethnic identity starting in, in the 70s. Um, <clears throat> there was also a recovery of sexual identity as far as the women's movement, and that this generic language of man doesn't apply to women. So women wanted to stand up and be counted on their own terms as women. And there was also the politics of identity extended to sexual orientation. So there's been this group of Americans who identify themselves along sexual orientation lines, especially gays and lesbians. So that, that's been another faction within the politics of identity. And one of the latecomers to this whole politics of identity movement is, I would argue, evangelical Protestants or the religious right, where who has these people have adopted the language of identity very much, and so if, if being gay is something that goes all the way down, or if being black is something that goes all the way down, certainly being a Christian is something that goes all the way down, and it's something that, that kind of identity is not something that you leave behind once you enter into public life. So those kind of arguments about identity began to make sense to, to evangelical Protestants in ways that apply to politics with the rise of, of uh, organizations like the Moral Majority or the Christian Coalition. <clears throat> and what struck me in thinking about identity, especially with some of uh, my temple students, um, especially, well, is how arbitrary these identities are. Um, for instance, uh, ethnic, along ethnic lines, to call descendants from Asia Asian-Americans um, is, is really quite an amazing thing because traditionally, historically, the Japanese, the Koreans, and the Chinese don't get along. And so we just lump them all together on our census data as Asian-Americans. It makes kind of makes sense to us European, Americans of European descent, but to anybody who knows and maybe has lived through the way that Japan treated the Chinese and the Koreans, you know, it's sort of like, well, we don't want to be counted among them, but do we have a separate box for Japanese Americans, Korean Americans, Chinese Americans? So that's one way it could be awfully um, arbitrary. Another great one is Irish American. In, multi in the language of multiculturalism, because Irish Americans come from Europe and speak English, we call them Anglo Americans. Even the Dutch we consider Anglo Americans. Um, but what multiculturalism did was accomplish something that 400 years of British rule never did to the Irish. The Irish would resent being called Anglo because they've precisely resisted become part of, becoming part of the British, British rule. They've resisted becoming Anglo. And yet in America, Irish Americans are considered Anglo-Americans. Um, 
And then even African-American identity. It's quite interesting now having a president of African descent who did not come up through the system of slavery. His, his family didn't come up through the system of slavery or civil rights. His father was from Kenya. So he comes straight from a, an African background without being mediated through the whole problems of slavery, Jim Crow, and civil rights. So Barack Obama is very different from someone like Jesse Jackson. Um, and and I, as I've encountered the temple, there are students from Ghana in some of my classes, and they don't necessarily know, identify with the story of African Americans, even though, of course, they're African American because they're from Africa and they're American. Um, one of, one of the best examples of this is a movie that I highly um, value, even though I don't necessarily recommend it because it's, it's rated R and not everyone's conscience is deep. <clears throat> handle this, but it's a movie called Ararat, made by a, an Armenian-Canadian director. Um, and it's about the Armenian genocide in the 1910s, teens. And there's this, um, it's a movie within a movie. The movie within the movie is an epic about the, the slaughter of Armenians by the Turks. <clears throat> but the movie is about the people within the movie, various directors, actors, writers, consultants. And there's this great scene uh, in the movie where a Turkish Canadian who plays one of the Turks who actually slaughters a lot of Armenians in this epic within the movie. He's being driven home after one of the shoots by an Armenian Canadian whose father was one of the freedom fighters and tried um, to execute one of the Turkish officials or something. Um, and they have, this, they have this dialogue in this guy's apartment, the Turk's apartment, about what this genocide means to them as 21st century Canadians. And it's just a wonderful exercise in the politics of identity and trying to figure out whether these things still matter to these people in some way, whether the battles are still real for them or whether they've left it behind because they've left the old world and now they're just living in Toronto and they're just making their ways as Canadians. Um, so that, that movie, I mean, the director is really smart, I think, in, in, in pointing out how artificial our identities are that we construct for ourselves. It's possible for someone who's living in Canada, who's renounced Armenian jurisdiction, and they're living under Canadian law, that they're just simply Canadian. They may have ethnic family ties that go back to Armenia, but are they really bound in some way by the Armenian government or by the Armenian people. Um, they may be hyphenated in some ways, but uh, choosing your Armenian identity as opposed, if you're a female Armenian Canadian, do you choose your Armenian identity more than your female identity? Um, so there's a lot of ways in which this, this, uh, this, this notion of the politics of identity are very artificial and arbitrary. If I have one-eighth Irish blood in me, but I have a one-eighth Polish blood. Which do I choose as my ethnic identity? Which, which heritage do I celebrate more? It's easy during the week of St. Patty's Day to choose your Irish identity, but 
But again, these are, these are things that uh, don't make a lot of sense now that we're all sort of one people in the United States and we've, we've renounced our, um, we've, we've moved somewhere. It's one thing if you're a refugee hoping to go back to the homeland and you've escaped political persecution and want to go back, but it's another thing if you've moved entirely, it seems to me, and are now going to identify with the United States. <clears throat> So, the reason for going into this, uh, if you're wondering, is partly because I'm fascinated by it, but more important, if you're an Orthodox Presbyterian, if you're a member of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, I would argue there's more at stake for you in the controversies of the 1920s and 1930s in the PCUSA than there is for Armenian Canadians who, are, who may be interested in the Armenian Genocide. Now again, that seems really insensitive to something as colossal and as wicked as the Armenian Genocide. I don't mean to diminish that, but again, if you've, if you've moved from the old world into a new world and have no plans of going back, it seems to me to keep that battle alive to be fairly artificial. Um, even though there is a question of justice still, that's, that's relevant and there's still questions about whether Turkey's going to get admitted to the European Union and what do they do with the Armenians and all that. I'm not trying to diminish any of those concerns. But there's, there's a real question of membership involved in this. And our membership as Orthodox Presbyterians is in a church that came directly out of battles from in the 1920s and 1930s and Machen was the leading fighter in those battles from the 20s and 30s. So, in effect, by virtue of membership in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, you and I have fellowship with J. Gresson Machen, and our, our identity in some ways as Orthodox Presbyterians is bound up with his identity as an American Presbyterian and the church that he helped to found. Now again, as a departed saint with no longer having a body, Machen has a different kind of fellowship with other saints than, than we do. But at the same time, we have a fellowship with Machen by virtue of being in a communion that he helped to establish that, again, gives a real, substantial, uh, tangible aspect to our identity as Orthodox Presbyterians that is not arbitrary, that's not a construction, um, but it, it really is a part of our lives once we take those church membership vows or ordination vows in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And so to the extent that we've taken those vows, we are, we are, we are related to Meiji, we are in fellowship with him, we are in communion with him, and we are part of the story of uh, Meiji's battles. So um, that's a little bit of a orientation regarding um, the politics of identity and Orthodox Presbyterian identity and where Machen fits in all this. Now, I have some long quotations here about Machen um, and it, it's, it's interesting to me um, that if you were to identify, if the OPC does have celebrities, um, who would they be? For, for many people it would be um, Gerhard is Voss, though of course Voss was never in the OPC. For many, it would be Cornelius Van Til. There'd be great justification in that. For many, or excuse me, for some, it would be John Murray. Here at Calvary, we have a plaque in the back for um, E.J. Young, and we also have a plaque that used to be on our pulpit. We still need to, to remount it somewhere for 
for uh, Ned Stonehouse. And so at Calvary, our, our celebrities in the OPC are young and Stonehouse. Um, but in some ways, you could argue that Machen is the real celebrity. And it's part of that is because of the um, attraction that he received or the appeal that he, he um, gave to other, other people, even some of his foremost. <coughs> so this first long quotation is from the obituary that Pearl Buck wrote in the New Republic. And of course, um, Buck is the author of The Good Earth, um, won a Nobel Prize for Literature, right? Wasn't it a Nobel Prize? I'm not sure which book. Was it Good Earth? Um, she was also, though, if you don't know this, one of the liberal Presbyterian missionaries that Machen opposed. Um, and yet she had these very amazing words to say about Machen from the New Republic, in the New Republic. The New York Times a few days ago, I'm reading, brought the news of the death of Jacobs and Machen, the fighting fundamentalist. I never knew him, but somehow it's a shock to read of his death. I find I am sorry he is dead, though I never thought of him when he was alive, except to find occasional enjoyment in his doings when I read of them in the papers. I feel a sense of his loss, knowing now that he is gone, where he need no longer fight. Because presumably everyone in heaven will agree with him. <laughs> I hope if he is now where he thought he would be, that he is not bored with the eternal peace. <laughs> the column devoted to him was a striking one. He was, as it says, very well a brilliant fundamentalist. He was subjected to every influence of liberal theology, Johns Hopkins University, Princeton Theological Seminary, Marburg, Gettingen, a man of learning and of worldly knowledge. He chose the most narrow fundamentalism and dedicated himself and all his remarkable gifts to that creed. The church has lost a colorful figure and a mind which stimulated by its constant contrary activities. He added life to the church and it needs life. We, and we have all lost something in him. Pardon me. The church has lost the cult, excuse me, we have lost a man whom our times can ill spare. A man who had convictions which were real to him and who fought for those convictions and held to them through every change in time and human thought. There was a power in him which was positive in its very negations. He was worth a hundred of his fellows as princes of the church who occupy easy places and play their church politics and trim their sails to every wind, who in their smug observance of the conventions of life and religion offend the all-honest and searching spirits. No forthright mind can live among them, neither can the honest skeptic nor the honest dogmatist. I wish Dr. Machen had lived to go on fighting. <clears throat> Sorry, as I said, this is sort of personal. Now comes the next quotation from H.L. Mencken. Uh, Mencken was the greatest skeptic of the United States in the first half of the 20th century, at least. Uh, both Machen and Mencken came from Baltimore. Um, they had personal uh, acquaintances, one of whom was a brother-in-law of Machen's, who actually, I think, tried to get both men together at one point, but they never, since they weren't living in the same cities, at that point, Philadelphia, Baltimore, there was never a chance. But you would not expect, the common perception of Mencken is that he's the great debunker of all American religion. And in point of fact, he had a great respect for all sorts of uh, religious expressions, among them, J. Gress and Machen. I think Mencken was a very astute observer of American Protestants. But he, he wrote this about 
Machen in uh, an obituary for the Baltimore Sun. <clears throat> the Reverend J. Russell Machen, who died out in North Dakota on New Year's Day, got on the whole a bad press while he lived, and even his obituaries did much less than justice to him. To newspaper reporters, as to other antinomians, a combat between Christians over a matter of dogma is essentially a comic affair. And in consequence, Dr. Machen's heroic struggles to save Calvinism in the Republic were usually depicted in ribald, or at least, or at all events, in somewhat skeptical terms. The generality of readers, I suppose, gathered thereby the notion that he was simply another fundamentalist on the order of William Jennings Bryan and the Simeon faithful of Appalachia. But he was actually a man of great learning and what is more, of sharp intelligence. Mencken is still getting digs into Bryan. He hated Bryan. He covered the Scopes trial, and he wrote one of his worst pieces after Bryan's death, three days after the Scopes trial, and just laid it on even, just stuck it to Bryan all the more. So he's still sticking it to Bryan, even here. <clears throat> what caused Machen to quit Princeton and found a seminary of his own was his complete inability as a theologian to square the disingenuous ev evasions of modernism with the fundamentals of Christian doctrine. He saw clearly that the only effects that could follow diluting and polluting Christianity in a modernist manner would be its complete abandonment and ruin. Either it was true or it was not true. If, as he believed, it was true, then there could be no compromise for the persons who sought to whittle away its essential postulates, however respectable their motives. <clears throat> Thus he fell out with the reformers who had been trying in late years to convert Presbyterian Church into a kind of literary and social club devoted vaguely to good works. Most of the other Protestant churches have gone the same way, but Dr. Machen's attention as a Presbyterian was naturally, naturally concentrated upon his own connection. Interesting that Mencken observes Machen was interested in the Presbyterian Church. Buck, who was a Presbyterian, didn't even get that right. She just says he was the most narrow fundamentalist, but leaves the Presbyterian thing completely out, at least in the quotation I gave his one and only purpose was to hold it resolute to what he conceived to be the true faith. When that enterprise met with opposition, he fought vigorously, and though he lost in the end and was forced out of Princeton, it must be manifest that he marched off to war with all to Philadelphia with all the honors of war. My interest in Dr. Machen while he lived, though, was large and not personal, for I never had the honor of meeting him. <coughs> Moreover, the doctrine that he preached seemed to me, and still seems to me, to be excessively dubious. I say much more the chance of being converted to spiritualism, to Christian science, or even to the New Deal, than to Calvinism, which occupies a place in my cabinet of private horrors, but removed from that of cannibalism. But Dr. Machen had the same clear right to believe in that in, in it that I have to disbelieve in it, and though I could not yield to his reasoning, I could at least admire and did greatly admire his remarkable clarity and cogency as an apologist, allowing him his primary assumptions. That, it seems to me, is what the modernists have done. This is the last paragraph <clears throat> of the obituary. No doubt with the best of intentions in the world, they have tried to get rid of all the logical difficulties of religion and yet preserve a generally pious cast of mind. It is a vain enterprise. What they have left, once they have achieved their imprudent scavenging, is hardly more than a hot row of hollow platitudes as empty of psychological force and effect as so many nursery rhymes. They may be good people, they may even be contented and happy, but they are no more religious than Dr. Einstein. Religion is something else again. In Henry Ibsen's, Ibsen's phrase, something far more deep, deep down diving and mud upbringing. 
Dr. Machin tried to impress that obvious fact upon his fellow adherents of the Geneva Mohammed. It's a great line. <laughs> he failed, but he was undoubtedly right. Talk about deep down diving and mud upbringing. Our, our lesson from the confession maybe is an indication of that deep down diving and mud upbringing, trying to account for a sovereign God and, and, and sin in the world. One last quotation here that I won't read for, fee- for, for matters of time, but also for fear that I'll really break down. It comes from the obituary from, from uh, Ned Stonehouse that he wrote for Presbyterian Guardian on January 3rd, 23rd, 1937. It's a very different kind of, of uh, sentiment, um, and one that, that really shows how deeply involved the early founders of the OPC were with Machen, and what a great loss it was, only six months in, into the history of the church, to lose Machen on January 1st, 1937. But it, these, um, it is interesting in the Buck and Mencken reviews to see how much these uh, adversaries respected him. And it wasn't at all because he sold out or because he hobnobbed with them, but it was precisely because um, Machen stood by his convictions and fought uh, with, with great integrity. Um, and I would say also with great civility, as I hope to that we'll see. Uh, I doubt that similar obituaries were written for Jerry Falwell, and I doubt that similar obituaries will be written for Billy Graham. Now, neither of these men are intellectuals, and that gives Machen something of a, a different feel. But also, um, there, there are reasons for why Machen uh, received this kind of press, even from people who thought his ideas were incredulous. Um, and again, I hope to show some of that. Now, one last point before we uh, conclude, and this has to do with um, uh, where Machen comes from. Uh, just to give a, a quick o- overview, or uh, orientation to the Reformed faith that Machen said um, uh, was grand. Um, I'm, I'm currently working on a, on a, on a, his, on a, on a the history of, of Calvinism and the Reformed faith. And, and one of the interesting things is that uh, Zurich is first in primacy among um, all, the, all the places where the Reformed faith happened. And, and then comes Geneva. Um, and we need to remember sometimes not to call the Reformed faith Calvinism, because it disrespects Zurich and disrespects people like Zwingli who came before Calvin. Um, so, anyway, the Reformation really, for Reformed faith really starts in Switzerland, in these two cities. And then it extends all over Europe. Um, in some cases, it fares very badly. In France, uh, John Calvin's home country, uh, there's, there's great slaughter of, of Reformed Protestants there throughout the 16th century. England uh, is a mixed bag, Henry VIII, and they search for a, a, male, a male heir. Um, you know, and six wives and all that. The Reformation doesn't is kind of a, a mixed bag there. Poland, Lithuania, Transylvania, Hungary, these are places in Eastern Europe we don't really think of as being Reformed today, but there is still a Magyar or a Hungarian Reformed Church that comes to America in the 1920s. Um, I'm sorry, late 19th century and sort of establishes its own identity in the 1920s. So there are all these different places where the Reformed faith goes, but it doesn't really flourish except for Switzerland, the Palatinate, or Germany. The Palatinate is where we get the uh, Heidelberg Catechism from. Scotland, 
and um, the Netherlands. And these are the places that bring the Reformed faith to the USA. <clears throat> and it's interesting that the only one of these, these areas, the Switzerland doesn't, first of all, bring the Reformed faith to the USA. Switzerland receives refugees. They don't send out refugees. I mean, Switzerland has a really interesting history. And I think that's part of the reason why what, there are no Swiss Americans, really, here in the so Switzerland doesn't establish reformed churches in the United States. The Netherlands was a colonial power. They were here before the English kicked them out. Um, so there's a Dutch presence going all the way back to the 1620s, and Dutch reformed churches came in the 17th century as part of a colonial expansion. Scotland also comes as a part of a colonial expansion, more on the backs of the English colonies, lots of Scottish Scotch-Irish come to America um, through that venue. And the, the Palatinate or German-Americans, they come to Pennsylvania because William Penn offered them free, in some cases, free land. But there was no German colonial effort in, in North America. So the Germans just came for, for religious and political reasons and economic reasons and, and settled here. So those are the four... Uh, Three four main groups, and only those three are the, are the major expressions of the Reformed faith in America. And the Scottish ones are the ones responsible for producing the PC USA, which is the church that Machen was in. PC USA was the Presbyterian Church in America, founded with the first Presbytery of Philadelphia in 1706, the first General Assembly of 1789. And, um, and that church went through two splits, one in the 18th century between Old and New Side. And that also went through a split in the 19th century between Old and New School. In both cases, the revivals either of the First or the Second Great Awakenings were at issue. Machen is clearly situated in the Old School old school Presbyterian tradition by virtue of being a southerner in background both his parents were in the old school Presbyterian church in the south as well as by studying at Princeton Seminary which also represented the old school Presbyterian tradition I'll have more to say about old school Presbyterianism but that's really important to understanding Machen because so many of the convictions for which he fought in the 20s and 30s were based on his old school Presbyterian Background. The OPC doesn't really think of itself as an old-school Presbyterian church, um, largely because the old-school Presbyterian church was most associated with the South. Um, but, um, but really, our roots are very much in at least a northern version of old-school Presbyterianism coming from Princeton and in some ways mediated by Machen, his own experience in the South, and then teaching at Princeton Seminary. So that's kind of a quick orientation to Machen, where we're going in this course. I'll break uh, now, and if anyone had a comment or question, just one or two, maybe I could take you through a brief. Eric. What's the John and John and John and John? Oh, good. I thought that was clever, that's why I put it there, and then I ran out of time. It's John Calvin. Okay, I, I'm giving too much to John Calvin. John Calvin to John Knox, John Witherspoon. Witherspoon is one of the great American Presbyterians from the First General Assembly era to John Gresson Major. 
And then I could also throw in another John, to John Lisa, my, my good friend. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of Johns who are important Presbyterians. But there is, there is kind of a, there is kind of an interesting succession. I mean, Knox is a minister, is, is a refugee to Geneva. He learns a lot about the Reformed faith while in Geneva. He takes that back to the Scottish Reformation. Then the Scottish churches eventually produce people who go to, to the New World. Uh, among them, one of those Scots who come here is John Witherspoon, signer of the Declaration of Independence and all that. And so Machen is enough, is in some ways in that kind of succession as well. Okay, well, this is it. One last, go ahead. Oh, uh, I'll say more about that. That's, that's, those, are the, those are the convictions of old school Presbyterians, and again, I ran out of time. But Bible, election, confessionalism, kingdom, spirituality, church. It's a, help, it's, a, it's a helpful way of not thinking about a beer, but about a, uh, the kind of hallmark convictions of old school Presbyterianism. But I'll say more about that in the weeks ahead. All right, let's close with prayer. We hope you enjoyed this lesson. If you would like to read more about Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Glenside, Pennsylvania, please visit calvaryopcglenside.org. If you would like to hear more from Daryl Hart, you may also visit oldlife.org or visit reformedforum.org for information about all of Reformed Forum's programs and related websites and resources. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you join us again next time on Historia Ecclesia.